0: Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, good morning to those of you who have demonstrated the true Canadian spirit by coming to worship on one of the coldest days ever. Those of you here at Central Campus, God bless you. Also, those of you meeting together one of our other regional campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, in South Calgary, and uh, at the Crowfoot Theatres in Northwest Calgary. For those of you who are snuggling around the fireplace and joining us online, we do miss you, your warm fellowship, and hope you will join us again live real soon at one of our campuses. Would you just stand with me for a moment as we dedicate this time to the Lord in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness in our life. We thank you, Lord, for our great country. And yes, Lord, it's cold. But Lord, um, we are so blessed as a nation. And we thank you that we belong to this country. We thank you for all of your blessings. We also thank you, Lord, for your word and how it teaches us about who you are and what you desire for each one of us. I ask, Lord, as we continue to examine the evidence for its validity, Lord, that you would focus our minds, you'd soften our hearts to receive what you want to say to us, and then, Lord, you give us the courage to respond in whatever way you would have us to. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. We're in a series in which we're looking at what it is Christians believe and why it is we believe it. And presently, we're examining the evidence for why it is we believe in the Bible. And so far, I've called four witnesses to the stand to testify to the trustworthiness of the Bible. The first is the testimony of biblical inspiration and infallibility, which addresses the question, how do we know what people wrote in the Bible is from God and therefore true. The second witness is the testimony of manuscript reliability, which speaks to the question, given that the scriptures were copied and translated multiple times down through history, how can we be sure that what we read in the Bible today is the same as when the Bible was first written? The third witness I called on to testify to the validity of the Bible is the testimony of the science of archaeology. If you've ever visited Israel, you know archaeological digs are to be found everywhere. In fact, over 25,000 sites like this have been discovered that pertain to the Bible. Records of tens of thousands of people and events have also been found. And according to archaeological expert Dr. Nelson Gluick, The findings have verified and in no case contradicted a single properly understood biblical reference. That's huge. That's huge. The fourth witness I called on is the testimony of the prophets. The Bible is the only sacred book that includes hundreds of specific predictions about the future. The majority of these prophecies have been proven to be true in actual history with remarkable accuracy. In most cases, hundreds of years after the prophecy was recorded. And we looked at several of them last time. And so with that quick review, I now call on my fifth witness, the testimony of time. As I've already indicated, there are those who believe that the Bible is really the invention of man and therefore is full of myths and legends. And yet, the idea that the Bible is the product of a human conspiracy, as it were, it really holds little water because how do you conspire, humanly speaking, to write a book over a 1600 year span involving? over 40 generations, on three different continents, in three different languages, by 40 different authors from every walk of life, from servants to kings, fishermen to doctors, poets to military generals, and yet end up with a book that speaks to hundreds of different issues, but also has an internal consistency and unity that is nothing short of amazing. There is no chance of human conspiracy here. The first writers, they had no way of knowing what others would write centuries later. This type of unity can only be explained by the miracle working hand of God. In addition to this, not only is the Bible the most published book, the most translated book, the best-selling book in all of history, but it has also persevered despite extreme opposition. The Bible has been banned. It's been burned, it's been torn to pieces by emperors and kings and rulers down through history. If you had lived in Rome in 300 AD and were caught with the Bible, you would have been put to death by decree of the Roman emperor. At that time, thousands of Christians were slain, and every confiscated Bible was burned. Unfortunately, the emperor's efforts failed. He was removed from power, and a short time later, under new emperor Constantine, Christianity became the official religion of Rome. Voltaire, the famous French philosopher of the 18th century, He attacked the Bible boldly. And he said, a hundred years from now, the Bible will be swept from existence and you will hear no more of Christianity. Yeah, right. Do you know what happened when he died? His estate was auctioned off. And you know who bought his estate? The Geneva Bible Society. And they purchased his house and his printing press and used it to produce Bibles that were circulated all over the world. God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? (laughs) That's for sure. But you know, God's promise in Isaiah uh, chapter 40, verse 8 stands true. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of of God endures forever. Neither was Jesus kidding when he said in Matthew 24, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The Bible has withstood the test of time. My sixth witness is the testimony of Jesus, which is the most important of them all, and here's why. You see, the major reason that we believe the Bible is trustworthy is not because of the compelling evidence that we've been talking about over these many uh, sessions. No, the overriding reason for our confidence in the reliability of the Scripture is plain loyalty to Jesus Christ. As Christ followers, we don't just believe in Jesus, we believe Jesus when he said he's God. In Mark 14, the high priest flat out asked Jesus, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus responded and said, I am. Jesus claimed to be the very Son of God, which means every one of us is going to have to make a decision about him, whether we believe he is God or whether we just believe he's another human being like the rest of us. If we come to the conclusion that Jesus is just a man, then his word carries no more authority than any other person. But if we believe Jesus is God, then we know that his words can be trusted. You see, our starting point, and follow me closely at this point, our starting point is our faith in Jesus Christ, not the Bible. Critics accuse Christians of arguing in a circle. They say that our argument goes like this. We know the Bible is true because the divine Lord Jesus says so, and we know that the Lord Jesus is divine because the Bible says so. Now, if that were our position, it would indeed be circular. But that is not our reasoning at all. Dr. John Stott, to whom I want to give credit for His helpful insights on this particular subject, he puts it this way. He says, we do not begin by assuming the Bible to be God's Word. On the contrary, we approach the Bible as we would approach any historical document. As we read the story of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, Luke and John, their testimony along with the illuminating work of God's Holy Spirit leads us to faith in Jesus Christ and then this Jesus in whom we have come to believe and trust as our Savior our Lord and God this Jesus gives us a proper view of the Scriptures now perhaps you are somewhat skeptical that someone could actually come to faith in Jesus Christ just by reading the Bible without a pastor or a theologian or a missionary explaining it to the person Well, I know a person personally who more than 30 years ago was an atheist totally disinterested in anything religious then someone handed him a Bible on a street in Vancouver and because he was alone and because he was without a job at the time he decided that he'd read it and as he began to do so He fell in love with Jesus. He committed his life to him, and he's been following him ever since. No one ever shared the good news with him. He simply read the scriptures, and he found Jesus and fell in love with him. Even more amazing is the true story Don McCullough tells in his book called The Trivialization of God. He writes about a man named... Julius Hickerson, who was a doctor, and he felt called by God to serve um, a certain people group in Colombia. His friends thought that he was losing his mind, and when he died in a plane crash in Colombia, many concluded that his life was, in fact, a waste. Many years later, the church that had sent Dr. Hickerson to Colombia. Sent another missionary to the same people group in Colombia. When the missionary arrived, he was shocked to discover that the people in the entire region were Christ's followers. And of course, immediately the missionary wondered how this could have taken place without a missionary presence. And so, when they were asked, the Colombians showed the missionary a Bible that they had found in their language. And as they read it, one by one, they fell in love with Jesus and gave their lives to him. When they were asked how they came across that particular Bible in their own language, they indicated they had recovered it from the plane wreckage. And on the inside cover was the name, Dr. Julius Hickerson. Folks, there is no other book that can do that because it is the very Word of God that speaks for itself. If we will read the Scriptures with an open heart, God will speak to us. He will communicate His love and His truth to us, and He will introduce us to His Son, Jesus, who claimed to be the way to God, who claimed to be the truth and the source of a full and abundant life. And so to summarize As we read the story of Jesus in the Gospels, their testimony along with God's Spirit leads us to faith in Jesus Christ. And then this Lord Jesus in whom we have come to trust gives us a proper view of the Bible. So how did Jesus view the Scriptures? Well, let's break the answer down into two parts. Let's look at the Old Testament, and then we're going to look at how he viewed the New Testament. To begin with, how did Jesus view the Old Testament? People often wonder how the Old Testament scriptures came to be. Well, the short answer is that God called, inspired, and authorized his prophets to write the books of the Old Testament, beginning with Moses, who wrote the first five books Of the Old Testament around 1450 years before Christ because of the authority God had given to Moses and the miracles that God performed through Moses for all the people to see Moses writings were immediately considered to be from God and in Deuteronomy 31 verse 24 it says that they were stored in the sacred Ark of the Covenant and served as a basis for Jewish faith and life from that point on. Following Moses, God raised up a line of prophets from about 1400 B.C. to 400 B.C., including Joshua and Samuel, whose lives demonstrated the power and the wisdom of God, and as a result, their writings also were seen as from God, because people saw God in these prophets. And their writings were collected and very much venerated as God's work. In time, the writings of the prophets were categorized around three themes, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And by around 425 B.C., the canon, which means collection of books, the collection of Old Testament books, was complete. Now that makes sense because the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Septuagint was completed around 250 B.C., which means for there to be a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, there had to be a complete Hebrew Old Testament before 250 B.C., from which the Septuagint was translated. Terry Hall says, For several centuries before Christ, The Jews revered and followed the same 39 books of the Old Testament that we have today. Now, as informative and as helpful that information is to us, Christians believe that the Old Testament is God's word first and foremost because Jesus Christ said the Old Testament is God's word. In John 10, verse 35, Jesus called the Old Testament scriptures the word of God. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, referring to the Old Testament scriptures. He says, I've come to fulfill them. In other words, Jesus said he didn't come to change the Old Testament. He didn't even come to discredit the Old Testament in any way. He came to explain God's original intention behind the Old Testament writings which had been perverted by the religious leaders. And he also came to complete the Old Testament prophecies through his own life. Furthermore, Christians believe that the Old Testament books in the Bible are the right ones because Jesus endorsed the collection of the Old Testament Scriptures in at least two ways that we see in the scriptures. In Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus described the Old Testament scriptures as the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms, which was the same threefold division of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. They called them the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus refers to all of the prophets who were martyred In the Old Testament period. He refers to Abel as the first martyr and he refers to Zechariah as the last prophet. Now Abel's story as we know is told in the first book of Moses in Genesis 4 and Zechariah's is told in 2nd Chronicles which is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. Now, even though the order of the books in the Hebrew Bible are different from ours today, the books themselves are the same. The content of those books are the same. And so Jesus was was really affirming that the canon or the collection of books in the Old Testament as we know them today are the right ones. Jesus quoted the Old Testament scriptures regularly. He consistently communicated total respect for the Old Testament scriptures as being authoritative and reliable. And so did his apostles. The New Testament writers quoted from nearly all 39 books of the New Testament. I'm sorry, of the Old Testament. Of the 260 chapters uh, of the New Testament, 209 of them quote the Old Testament clearly communicating that Jesus and his apostles saw the Old Testament as God's Word. Now, I should point out that the books known as the Apocrypha, which are included in the Roman Catholic Bible today, they were not included in the Hebrew Bible. They were were actually added to the Roman Catholic Bible um, not until 1546 A.D. at the Council of Trent. The apocryphal books were written somewhere between the 3rd and the 1st century before Christ. But they didn't claim to be the word of God, nor did they claim to be written by prophets of God. They were never quoted by Jesus or the writers of the New Testament like the, other old, like the old Testament scriptures were. They were not accepted by Jerome, who made the Catholics' official Latin version of the Bible, nor were they recognized as being authoritative scripture by the Jews or by the early Christians. Now in Mark chapter 7, I encourage you to read that sometime, particularly between verses 5 and 13. Jesus went into quite a long discourse in which he reprimanded the Pharisees and the religious leaders for adding their traditions and legalistic practices to the Old Testament and attempting to make those traditions and those legalistic practices equal to the scriptures. Now unfortunately there are churches today who continue to add things to the Bible by giving church tradition and church leaders equal authority to the Bible. And there are pseudo-Christian churches who give other truth sources equal authority to the Bible which is something that you'll see in Mark chapter 7, is something that Jesus did not tolerate. Neither did Jesus tolerate those who tried to subtract things from the Bible. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus confronted the Sadducees for subtracting or denying the truths of the Scriptures. And what they were denying, what they were trying to minimize, were the miracles The supernatural aspects that we see in the scriptures, they were trying to write that all off as being fairy tales. They were also denying the resurrection of the dead. And in verse 24, Jesus said to them, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? All that to say, Jesus endorsed the Old Testament as the Word of God. He confronted those who tried to add to the Scriptures and he confronted those who tried to subtract certain truths from the Scriptures. Which leaves us with a very important question. If this is how Jesus viewed the Old Testament Scriptures, then if he truly is our Lord, God, and King, How can we possibly have a lower view of the Old Testament than he did? So how did Jesus view the New Testament? Well, the argument here is a little different because at the time of Jesus, when he was on the planet, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. And yet, as we're going to see in a moment, Jesus deliberately made provision for the writing of the New Testament by appointing, empowering, and authorizing a special group of his disciples, whom he named apostles. In the same way that God the Father appointed prophets to write the Old Testament scriptures. In Luke chapter 12, we read, he, referring to Jesus, called his disciples... And chose from among them twelve whom he named apostles. The apostle Peter recognized this when he said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2: I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets, that's referring to the writings of the Old Testament, and the command. Given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles, referring to Christ's authorizing his apostles to write the New Testament. Now, John Stott points out that the apostles had three qualifications which made them a unique and irreplaceable group. First, he called and personally commissioned them as apostles. You see, the apostles were not self-appointed or appointed by the church. They were all personally chosen, commissioned, and authorized by Jesus himself. We know this to be the case for the twelve, even though Judas Iscariot, he defected and was ultimately replaced by Matthias, and we read about that in Acts chapter 1. But we know that Jesus also chose and appointed at least two others to be apostles. The half-brother of Jesus, his name was James, and Paul, who was called Saul at the time. In the case of James, the half-brother of Jesus, he, by the way, is the writer of the book of James, we know from John chapter 7, verse 5, that in the early days of Jesus' ministry, James, along with Jesus' other siblings, they did not believe in Jesus. They were actually opposed to him. However, Jesus appeared to James alive after his resurrection. And James became a fervent disciple of Jesus Christ from that point on, and ultimately became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. At some point... Jesus commissioned James as an apostle. Because we read in Galatians chapter 1 verse 19 um, that actually in that particular passage he's referred to as an apostle um, by the apostle Paul himself. And this is what Paul wrote. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. As for Paul, we know that when he was still called Saul, um, that he persecuted Christians. In fact, he was an enemy of Christ. He saw that the, 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 um, the death, the martyrdom of many Christians, oversaw it himself. And he was an enemy of Jesus until sometime after Jesus' ascension. He had a personal encounter with Jesus that changed the trajectory, not only of his life, but also of his eternity. We also know that Jesus commissioned Paul to be an apostle and that the other apostles affirmed Paul's apostleship. For we read in Galatians 1.1 these words, Paul, an apostle, not from man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So again, the first qualification of an apostle was that they all were personally chosen, commissioned, and authorized by Jesus the second qualification was that they all experienced jesus personally and his resurrection when the time came for someone to replace judas the traitor the essential qualification peter laid down in acts chapter 1 verse 21 was this therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time The Lord Jesus was living among us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Again, this was true in the case of the disciples, the apostles, the 12 apostles, and James, but it was also true of Paul. Although Paul did not know Jesus during his public ministry, he was granted a special resurrection appearance. Without this, Paul could not have been an apostle. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, Paul says, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? The third qualification was that the apostles were given special inspiration by the Holy Spirit of God to remember what Jesus taught, what Jesus did, and ultimately to write the New Testament scriptures. Now, as you read the scriptures, it becomes very evident that the apostles understood Christ's intention and they exercised the authority that Christ gave them. In First Thessalonians chapter two, verse thirteen the Apostle Paul said his message was the word of God. A little later in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4, he clarified that his words were not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit of God. In 1 Peter 1, verse 23, the Apostle Peter referred to the message that he had just communicated as the living and enduring word of god you see that the apostles clearly understood and exercised the authority that christ gave them now in addition to all that the early church believers also recognized the special calling and authority of the apostles Ephesians 2.20 indicates that the early church built its doctrines and its practices on the foundation of the apostles. Acts 2.42 says the early church devoted themselves and followed the apostles' teaching. And so you see, this is how Jesus very intentionally laid a foundation or prepared the way for the writing of the New Testament scriptures. He called and commissioned a very specific group of apostles. He gave them all a personal experience of himself and his resurrection. And thirdly, he gave them a very special inspiration, anointing, and power to remember all that they had heard and experienced and learned from him. So with that in mind, the question is, how do we know the 27 books that make up the New Testament Scriptures Are the right ones? Well, there were two major tests that the early church used in determining whether a New Testament book was recognized as inspired and authorized by God. There were several secondary ones, but they all hinged on these two main ones. The first and most supreme test was: Was it written by an apostle? If not, Did it come from a close associate of the Apostle, like one of their personal disciples, as in the case of John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark and was a personal disciple of the Apostle Peter? Or in the case of Dr. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, who was a close associate of the Apostle Paul? Or in the case of Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, and was a close associate of the Apostle James. If it wasn't written by an Apostle, or a close associate, or if it was written long after the Apostles, and their close associates were dead and gone, then it obviously was not included as part of the New Testament canon or collection of authorized books. Now, it's important to point out that after the apostles and their close associates had died or had been martyred in many cases, the fathers or the leaders of the early church clearly understood that the apostles were a unique group. At the beginning of 110 A.D., which is only 10 years after the last apostle passed away, that would have been the Apostle John, only 10 years after he died, Ignatius, who was a bishop of Antioch, he was on his way to Rome to be executed. He wrote a number of letters to the Christians at the church of Ephesus, to the church at Rome, and other churches. And several times he wrote this. I do not like Peter and Paul issue you with commands. They were apostles. I am but a condemned man. Again, I remind you that Ignatius was a bishop in the church, and yet he knew he was not an apostle and therefore did not have apostolic authority. The special apostolic authority Christ had given to his chosen apostles ended when they died. Tertullian of North Africa wrote these words around 200 A.D. We Christians are forbidden to introduce anything, and he's talking about introducing new truth, okay? Like new scripture, or anything that be considered equal to scripture. He's saying, we Christians are forbidden to introduce anything on our own authority, or to choose What someone else introduces on his own authority. Our authorities are the Lord's apostles, and they in turn faithfully passed on to the nations the teachings which they have received from Christ. That was the first test to determine if a book was God inspired. Was it written by an apostle? or a close associate, or disciple, of an apostle. The second test was this. Was it recognized as inspired and authoritative by the early churches? Make no mistake. The early church did not create the books that are now included in our Bible. As someone once said, the early church councils no more created what is in our Bible than Isaac Newton created the basic laws of physics. No, Newton merely discovered and affirmed the basic law of physics. And in the same way, the early church simply recognized and affirmed the books that were clearly inspired by God, that had the authority of God. You see, long before the ancient church councils gave their stamp of approval to the 66 books that make up our Bible today, Christians and local church elders, some of whom, you remember, had personally witnessed Jesus' teachings and miracles and crucifixion, death, and resurrection, these elders and these early Christians were constantly collecting, evaluating, and deciding, deciding which of the many writings of their day were accurate, were ca- that were, uh, actually carried the truth and the authority of Jesus Christ and or that of his apostles. It is in this sense that the church councils merely confirmed the books that were already seen as inspired by God by the early church. Now, Dr. Norman Geisler points out that with the exception of one little book called 3rd John, by the year 150, that's just 50 years after the Apostle John passed away, the last uh, Apostle passed away, by the year 150 A.D., all the New Testament books were cited by church leader Irenaeus, who, by the way, knew Polycarp, Polycarp in turn was a disciple of the Apostle John. In 367 AD, Athanasius, the leader of the Alexandrian church, published the first known list of the, of, of the Bible that matches perfectly the, book, the Bible's 66 books as we have them today. Jerome recognized the same collection in his Latin translation of the Bible in 385 AD. And of course, there were two major church councils. There was one at Hippo in 385 A.D., one at Carthage in 397 A.D., they confirmed the Bible to be complete in the 66 books that we have today. And so you see, Jesus not only endorsed the Old Testament Scriptures, quoted from them regularly, but he purposefully arranged for the writings of the New Testament Scriptures, which brings me back to the question that I asked earlier about the Old Testament. If Jesus viewed the Bible as God's Word, if he viewed the, the, uh, the, the New Testament Scriptures as God's Word and arranged for them to be written, then if he truly is our Lord and King, how can we possibly have a lower view of the Scriptures than he did We believe the Bible is trustworthy fundamentally, first and foremost, because we believe and trust Jesus. And so there you have it. Six compelling reasons to believe in the validity of the Bible. The evidences I've presented are like the cords of a rope. Some may be stronger than others, but together they make a very compelling argument for the Bible's validity. There is one more evidence, a seventh evidence, and that is that God has used the Bible to transform the lives of multiple millions of people in a very good way down through time. He's changed their view of life. He's changed their view of the world He's changed their relationships, their values, their view of eternity. Now, this is a subjective evidence, but you see, along with all the others, it is very compelling. The Bible has changed so many lives. It's changed my life, it has given me timeless answers for how to live this life to the full, for having a healthy marriage for raising a family, for building true friendships, for living in victory, and finding true fulfillment in life through trusting Jesus and building a friendship with Jesus. There is no other book that speaks more directly and honestly to me about the truth of who I am. People will say, you know, the Bible isn't true. They say people who follow the Bible, they're being deceived. You know what deception is? The kind of psychological babble that you hear everywhere these days that tells you to put yourself at the center of the universe, that tells you to go for the gusto, you only go around once, that tells you there's no such thing as sin and guilt that you should just do what comes naturally. You should just feed your ego, live for yourself, cheat on your spouse if you really want to, stomp on whoever it is you need to to get ahead and spend all of your money on yourself. Jesus says those who buy into that kind of thinking are the ones who are being deceived. Jesus said, do not be deceived, for you will reap what you saw." One day, people who live this way, they're gonna wake up and they're gonna realize they built their lives on a house of cards, on shifting sand. It's only a matter of time that house of cards is gonna come crashing down. And people who live this way are gonna face major disappointment and despair. Jesus said if you put your trust in me and in my word, your life will be like the builder who builds his house on a rock. The wind can blow, the storm can come, the earth can shake, but your life will stand firm. Jesus says you have a choice. You can build your life on shifting sands of today's hedonistic philosophies and even though they may gratify you for a time a day is coming when you're going to feel like your life just crashed and burned and made no sense at all Jesus says you can build your life on me and my word instead if you build your life on me if you trust me if you follow me with all of your heart you will never regret it you know I followed Jesus for well over 40 years and I can testify that I have absolutely no regrets living all out for Jesus in fact my life has been incredibly fulfilling and abundant filled with peace and the joy of the Lord which only he can give I can't imagine where I'd be I can't imagine where my life would have ended up without Jesus and the foundation that I've been given through the scriptures for my life my future and for my family and so I leave you where I started and I ask you once again What will you do with Jesus and this his book? It's too important a question to ignore, you know. Because what I'm talking about has huge implications not only for this life, but also for the next. I challenge you to have the humility and the courage to to read and to study and to reflect on this book, to ask God to reveal himself through this book. And then make a decision one way or another about this book and the Jesus who authored it. Because the Bible says a day is coming when we will no longer be in a position to make a judgment about Jesus and this book. Because we will stand before Jesus And he's going to judge us according to the decision we made about him. Would you please stand with me for closing prayer? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you again for the truth of your word and the way that it tells the truth about who we are and and what it is we need. I want to pray for anyone here right now who is just resisting the truth, just resisting you. I pray, Lord, that you will help them realize that they cannot ignore you forever. They need to make a decision about you one way or another because one day we're going to all stand before you and we're going to give account for the decisions that we made in this life and in that moment the truth about us will be exposed even if we've denied it our entire life at that time our pride, our sin, our selfishness will be exposed and at that moment we're going to need a savior and this book tells us about that, Savior. I pray for everyone here, even those watching online, Lord, that they will open up their lives to you now and receive the forgiveness and the gift of eternal life that you offer through your Son, Jesus. If you would like to become a follower of Jesus, I'm going to invite you to pray this simple prayer along with me right now. Lord Jesus, thank you for making a way possible for me to be in relationship with you. I confess that I'm a sinner, that I've been going my own way, and I acknowledge I can't do it on my own. I acknowledge that I need your forgiveness. Lord, I want to start over. Please forgive me. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I love you and I surrender my life to you completely. I want to and I intend to live all out for you. Please invade my life with your presence, with your love, your joy, your peace, and make me like you. And I ask that you would live your life through me. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen friend if you prayed that prayer if it came from your heart you can know that the God of the universe heard you and you are his son and daughter not because of anything that you have done necessarily but because of what he did for you on the cross of Calvary you're a new creation the old is gone the new has come you are one with Christ Christ He is in you, you are in him. I want to challenge and encourage you to daily ask Jesus to do your day with you, to purposefully, intentionally ask him to live his life through you because he will. And if you prayed that prayer, would you tell one of the prayer partners who are gonna make their way up here shortly you just tell them or would you tell another uh, believer about your decision? I want to encourage you to do that. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God be with you. See you next week. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.